Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, where we talk about the CSB Everyday Jesus Reading Plan. This is week four. I can't believe we're already at week four. With me today is Matthew Wiedemann and Aaron Downs. Good to be with you again, AJ and Matthew. Ditto. The reading in Genesis this week is Genesis 39 through Genesis 50. Hard to believe we're finishing up Genesis. It feels like it just genesis and we're almost done with it. <laughs> Last week, we touched on Joseph and Potiphar's wife, and I think Aaron has a little bit more to say about that. But after that, we see Joseph thrown into prison and seems to stay there for a while. The Lord does give Joseph success in prison, and he interprets some dreams, and then he's still in prison. Does anybody have any discussion or questions about the, the first section of the reading? Well, as you mentioned, I have a few more comments about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And I would just want to remind us that if you're reading this whole section together with Genesis 38, as you probably should do, even though our plan separates it, you see a major contrast between Judah and Joseph. Judah seeks out a cult prostitute. Joseph is enticed and he flees from her. And so they, they respond to sexual temptation in exact opposite ways. In addition to that, Joseph is described as a really handsome, attractive guy um, when we're introduced to him. And that's the same language that's used to describe Rebecca earlier in Genesis. And then later in the Hebrew Bible, that's the same language that's used to describe Esther. So these individuals, even though it's rendered differently in English, you have the same description for them. And so this Joseph story begins to be one where other people are almost compared to him. So at our church, we're going through the book of Esther, and by using the same language to describe Esther's appearances as is Joseph, um, they're, they're placed in similar situations. They're in exile, so to speak. They're in captivity. They're given this opportunity to engage in a sexual relationship with someone in power, And we'll notice that Esther and Joseph respond in really, really different ways. So it's important to grab onto these sorts of things. And uh, Joseph, of course, is not perfect, but here we see him making wise choices. When you were talking about how the description of Joseph and Esther were the same, I thought you were talking about this being beautiful and handsome and appearance and form. Yes, that is is what I'm talking about. That is what you're talking about? So in Genesis 39, it says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And I think the CSB renders for Esther, she had a shapely figure and was very beautiful. Well, it's the same Hebrew words. And interestingly enough, you know, when you're translating, you have to use culturally appropriate terms. And when we're talking about beauty— Well, not only are there different standards of beauty in different cultures, there are also different assignment of beauty words for different genders. So here, it's kind of hidden, but they're described in exactly the same way. So if you're reading in the Hebrew Bible, if you're familiar with the Joseph account, then when you read Esther, you pick up on that similarity, and then you start to pick up on other parallel linkages between these two accounts where the situations they're in are described in somewhat similar terms. I would also want to just draw attention to the fact that in this account, Joseph's master recognizes that the Lord is with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful. And if you recall, this is the same kind of language that Jacob's uncle Laban uses when he talks with Laban. He says, I've learned by divination that the Lord is with you and he makes everything you do successful. And so then he tries to use Jacob to increase his own wealth. Well, 
the Egyptians recognize this about Joseph as well, and so they give Joseph authority over a lot of things. So verse 4, Potiphar put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. And then later on in the narrative, after Joseph is retrieved out of prison and reestablished in a place of authority, what we start to see here is God's promises to Abraham coming to fulfillment. So God promised Abraham in Genesis 17 that kings would come from him, that kings would come from Sarah, and that through Abraham, all of the nations would be blessed. Well, now Joseph is essentially exercising rulership over all of Egypt, and through him, Egypt and Israel, his family, and all of the nations are being blessed during this time of famine. So at the end of Genesis, God's promises to Abraham are already starting to come true, even though they're not yet in the land. As we're coming to a conclusion of the book of Genesis, I think there are two two features that we would want to know about the way that this book ends. The first is that we see God's sovereignty really, really clearly. Even when people act wickedly, God uses it for good. And this is exactly what Joseph tells his brothers. You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. So even though we might doubt God's authority, God's control, God's sovereignty throughout this book, and we see figures doubting God's sovereignty throughout and taking events into their own hands, they become devious, they devise to work out their own way, they don't trust God, we see from a distance that God can be trusted because he's in control of all things, even the the evil things he works out for his glory and for the good of his people. This is important to know because it leads into the other thing we should we should observe about the way that this book ends. Genesis began in the Garden of Eden, and, and now it ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. Everything started out with life, but as Adam and Eve violated the covenant with the Lord and the curse of death was given, the book ends with Joseph dead, right? We, we feel the, the death at the end of the story. But even there, there's a bit of hope because Joseph makes the sons of Israel take the oath that when God comes to your aid, you're to carry my bones up from here. So Joseph recognizes God comes to the aid of his people in their salvation, even in the midst of judgment. And that's how the book ends. Those two points remind me of a catechism question and answer in relation to the book of Joseph as I was thinking about this. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 28, says, how does our knowledge of creation and God's providence help us? I think we see a lot of the answer in the story of Joseph here. The answer is that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and in all things, which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in the faithful God and Father. We definitely see Joseph being put in many different situations of adversity, and you would have to think that it was very difficult for him to trust God, asking questions, why am I in this prison? Why am I in prison again? Why am I being falsely accused? And then being raised to the number two in Egypt and in prosperity, being thankful, and seeing God work out his providence in the life of Joseph to sustain his family and to eventually work out his his promise. Yeah, absolutely. I think in his life, you see our natural temptation either to abandon God ourselves or to believe that God has abandoned us on the one hand, or on the other hand, to be like Adam and Eve and try to replace God. But in Joseph, though not perfectly, 
you see him at the end of his, his time with his brothers saying, am I in the place of God? No. Has God abandoned us? No. Should we abandon God? No. God, God is faithful. He's sovereign. Uh, so I think that, that catechism question is really instructive for us, and we see it put on display in the life of Joseph. Uh, yeah, one takeaway I had similarly uh, to what Aaron had just said, I guess Joseph to me is the first person, not that we're supposed to look to people, but he would be the first person in my opinion, really in Genesis where it's like, you know, he would be kind of a role model kind of guy where, um, you know, he kind of remained faithful again. He wasn't perfect, although didn't really say much imperfections in the Bible recorded of his, but I'm sure he had them. But anyways, yeah, one thing that stuck out to me, especially when he was in prison, is just that he stayed hopeful, faithful. He stayed positive. Um, God had blessed him with a gift to interpret dreams, and he didn't abandon that or just kind of forget about it and say, well, what good is any of this? I'm in prison and just get kind of mopey or whatever. Um because that, you know, that eventually is what brings him out of prison is um, people that work for the king are in there and they have dreams and he interprets them and it takes a long time. It's years down the road, but one of the guys remembers him. Hey, there's this guy in prison that could interpret my dream. And then, you know, God uses that um, to, you know, greatly advance Joseph. But that's kind of what stuck out to me. It's like, man, no matter what was going on, he kept getting the short stick really through no fault of his own. And he just didn't get discouraged or lose faith. And that's, you know, that's pretty admirable. I know that <laughs> I'd be very far from having that strong of faith or not getting in a bad mood, but you know, he just kind of kept, kept keeping on no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I think he is a pretty good example overall. And, um, I think we are intended to look at the faithfulness that he displays. I think we also do notice some questionable or at least ambiguous moral activities where he almost just really torments his brothers back and forth here. What you know, when holding one of them in prison, making it seem like they've stolen items. It's kind of hard to understand all of that. Uh, so I don't know that we would look to him as a perfect example, but I think you're right. He shows faithfulness throughout, and he eventually experiences God's blessing. Um, along those lines, there's also some non-canonical literature that explores some of Joseph's life, trying to fill in some of the gaps. So there's a story about Joseph in a zenith, his wife. So he marries this Egyptian and uh, the daughter of an Egyptian priest, nonetheless, and they tried to show that he did nothing wrong in marrying this pagan woman. So he wouldn't even kiss her or touch her until she had turned to worship the, the true God. So if you're looking for an interesting read that fills in some of these gaps, that's not actually scripture, but, but interesting nonetheless. Just Google Joseph and Asenath, and I think it'll show up for free. That was one of the questions that I had was, you know, it seems like throughout the story of Genesis so far, it it's definitely a a big no-no to try to take a wife from someone who wasn't part of the clan. And there's really no mention either way about how appropriate that was for Joseph. Yeah. And that's a question that Jews had to wrestle with. So in this story, I think he's visiting her father 
and her father tells her to go up and greet him and to give him a kiss of greeting or something. And he sticks his hand out there and won't let her kiss him because she doesn't worship the Lord. So, so they go to great extents, you know, to show she's, she's come to become a worshiper of the Lord. But you, you do realize that Joseph is in a unique situation. And interestingly enough, by the time Joseph tells his brothers to bring his father to Egypt— this is the one time where God tells Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. This is part of my plan for you. Uh, so whereas other times people would flee to Egypt for rest or provision without God's permission, now they have it. One thing that kind of struck me uh, the, in the story years later, once Joseph is reunited with his brothers, it seems like some, maybe maybe not all, but I don't know. He's got a lot of brothers. It's hard for me to track with which ones were which. Um, but it's, you know, it seems like they have a kind of a change of heart or a change of attitude towards him. I mean, they, at that point, they don't really know if he's alive or dead or where he is. You know, they shipped him off into slavery years and years prior. Um, but they seem to show, you know, a little bit of remorse for their brother. I mean, they reference him as we have one brother that's dead. And then on top of that, they have a new youngest brother who similarly, again, is the favorite. Um, but, you know, they don't have the envy and bitterness towards the new little brother, even though he's just the new favorite. He kind of takes Joseph's place. Yeah, it's hard to say how much moral change or progress his brothers made in this story. And they kind of take a back seat for much of it. But I think we talked about this a little bit where Judah declares that Tamar is more righteous than he is. Perhaps there's a point of moral churning and recognition there. Perhaps part of it is just that now these sons have grown up and they have families of their own to, to where they're less juvenile in the way that they relate to one another. They're perhaps a bit more mature, maybe. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say how much of their attitude towards Joseph is a genuine change because they feel remorse, and how much is it just because they see that now he's the ruler over all of Egypt. That's how they describe him. You know, how, how much of it is motivated by fear. Um, and, and I would think maybe that's part of it, because as soon as their father dies, they're afraid that Joseph hasn't actually changed his attitude towards them. So, so maybe that insecurity was rising out of the fact that they hadn't really changed their attitude towards him. It's hard to say. Yeah. Part of, and part of that that I'm thinking of, um, I think it's just right before he kind of reveals himself, hey, I'm your brother, I'm Joseph, um, is when the new youngest brother, Benjamin, is made out to look like a thief and he was going to have to stay. And again, I, I don't remember which brother it was, but he was talking with Joseph. He didn't know it was Joseph. And he's kind of pleading with him like, look, keep me instead. Like you have to let this, our youngest brother go back. Otherwise it's just, it's just going to kill our father. And yeah. you know, that was before he knew who Joseph was. I think that's definitely a different tone than I hate Joseph. Let's kill him you know, fast forward, now it's like we have to protect our youngest brother because it's just going to kill our father. We can't do that to him again. Yeah, I think you're talking about, wasn't that Judah who yeah. is offering himself up? And yeah. I, I think that, once again, relates to that scene in Genesis 38 where Joseph can or Judah can now see a distinction between his unrighteousness and the more 
right action of Tamar. Perhaps now he has a, a more aligned moral compass. Um, but once again, you see these guys who care a lot about what their dad thinks. Uh, that's that's why they wanted to kill Joseph to start with, because their dad loved him and not them. They wanted dad's affection. And and now they realize if, if Benjamin's out, um, dad's going to die in sorrow. And maybe maybe they've learned, or at least one maybe lesson that I kind of took away from this is, you know, it doesn't do you any good to be jealous or bitter or whatever towards people that have favor and blessing, whether you like them or not, or whether you think it's deserved or not. Like, you know, that's Mm -hmm. been a theme all throughout Genesis too, of people being envious of people that are esteemed more than they are, and they just seek to destroy it. And, you know, I don't know, maybe they learned that, and maybe that's why they don't hate Benjamin now. I don't know. Yeah, and I I mean, I think in chapter 49, we have a listing of the brothers and some of Jacob's words to them, and some are more favorable than others. So, for example, Reuben, the firstborn, is um, almost cursed because he defiled the bed of his father, right? Uh, so, So he's remembered as a wicked son, and the different sons to varying degrees are remembered and blessed more or less as they're remembered more or less favorably. Right. Yeah, so Jacob blesses his sons, and he passes away, and he requests that his bones be brought back to the, the cave at Machpelah. And we see an exodus of Israelites going back to the land mm-hmm. and burying Jacob there. Yeah, I I think that's significant because it's like Abraham who wanted his wife's bones buried in the land. I think perhaps there's at least a seed of a belief in resurrection and and of living in that land in the age to come. You know, their eschatology is not fully formed, certainly not really described here, but I think the burying of your bones in a particular place shows a hope for life in that place to come. I was going to kind of ask about that because they seem very, you know, they just valued very highly where they were and weren't buried, and they always made a big deal of it. And one thing I found a little bit interesting, um, if I'm recalling correctly, um, Rachel died at some point when they were traveling, Mm -hmm. correct? So she just kind of ended up getting getting buried somewhere random. And then, but Leah, the less favored wife, ended up being buried kind of with, with the whole group. Yeah, and so that's that, correct. I thought that was kind of, you know, it was kind of interesting or kind of cool that, you know, throughout her life she was kind of the the second-tier wife. She wasn't treated that well. She wasn't looked upon that favorably by Joseph or maybe other people. But then earlier in the story, you know, God had, uh, you know, he looked favorably upon her or whatever. He felt bad for her since she was she wasn't getting treated well and she was blessed with many children, and then now she kind of gets like another little final nod of being buried at a place of honor instead of, you know, Rachel kind of being buried in a ditch somewhere or something. I don't know where she was buried. Hmm. Is that did is that significant at all, or is that just kind of like a whatever? Like, it, it seems like a final tip of the hat to her. Like, you know what? You kind of had it rough here and there. People didn't like you that much. Maybe you were a little slow, whatever the bright eyes thing was that they described her. But it's kind of like a you know nice little final. It's a nice off. homage. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I think. Good for Leah. That's what I say. It's interesting that the Egyptians went with 
Joseph as well out of the land to to bury his father. That's just a really interesting detail. Yeah. That that's not you don't see that happening anymore. So after. unlike what is to come in the next book, exactly. where when the Egyptians go out, it's not in favor or to provide aid, but to destroy. Um, but I think there are probably a dozen other observations we could make from the theme of the blessing upon the younger son instead of the elder when Jacob blesses Joseph's sons um, to more deception that happens when, when Joseph's brothers try to convince him, don't destroy us because dad wanted you to promise that you forgave us, even though there's no record of that conversation. There's much more that we could probably observe. Uh, but as this book comes to close, we're reminded of the curse of death. Um, that was inflicted on Adam in the garden and now experienced by Joseph in Egypt. We turn our attention now to Matthew 14. This week's reading from the New Testament is Matthew 14 through Matthew 18. And we're continuing to track with Jesus's life and ministry. And in chapter 14, we begin with a sad event, the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod in order to please his wife and daughter. And so he beheads John the Baptist, and Jesus heard about these things uh, later on, we know, and he's sad. He's moved with compassion as we read the full synoptic gospels. We get a more rounded out picture, but then Jesus, um, as he hears about it, withdraws from the crowds to be alone, but they follow him, and as they follow him into the wilderness, he ends up feeding 5,000 people with the five loaves of bread and the two fish, and then they try to withdraw again, and eventually we see Jesus walking on the water. And I would just want to suggest that we have a little bit of a Moses-like presentation of Jesus here, where just as Moses, in a sense, fed thousands of people in the wilderness, and Moses, in a sense, crossed the Red Sea for them, Jesus has events with bread and water, kind of like Moses. This adds to Matthew's picture of Jesus is a better and greater Moses. And then we get into chapter 15, where Jesus begins to interact with the Pharisees and the scribes again, where they accuse him of breaking the law. And he, of course, responds to them and sort of puts them in their place. Quoting in 15.7, he calls them hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, and he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So Jesus does not have very, you know, kind or compassionate words for these individuals. Um, and then as the healing and miracles of Jesus progress in this record, there's once again attention drawn to the fact that Jesus offers this to the Gentiles. So there's this Gentile mother who expresses faith um, and, and Jesus heals her daughter. He heals many other people, and the people gave glory to the God of Israel. Then he goes on to feed 4,000 people, so it's like this event is happening all over again, and he uses this as an object lesson for the disciples when he warns against the scribes or the Sadducees and the Pharisees because they can't read the signs of the times. Um, his disciples, of course, don't understand, and this leads us into Peter's confession of the Messiah, which could not have been revealed to him by man, but was revealed to him by God. And then in chapter 17, they go up to the mount, and Jesus experiences this transfiguration, and once again, he's pictured like Moses. So if you remember when Moses goes up on the mount, his face shines with the glory of God. Well, that's sort of what happens here with 
Jesus. It's it's like he's a, the new and better Moses. He swears his disciples to secrecy, and um, then they leave that place, and his disciples start to bicker about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So you'd think that these individuals would be better than they are, but we see their failings, their sinfulness, and, and weaknesses here. Uh, but Jesus bears with them. He continues to teach them, and and we end um, in at the end of chapter 18, where Jesus teaches his disciples to love and forgive one another. What do you make of the uh, the section where he heals the Gentile woman's daughter who's demon-possessed? As you mentioned, you know, he has compassion on that situation, heals her. But it starts out with him just ignoring her as she's pleading a lot. And then he calls her a dog, like, I'm not here for you, lady. Like, you're a dog, you ain't getting none of this bread. But, you know, she's persistent, has faith, and then he has compassion. But, you know, I'm not challenging the first part of that as far as him ignoring her and calling her a dog, but it's just an interesting um, sequence of events, I guess. What What's that first part of that mean where he's ignoring her and all that? Yeah, I, I think what's going on here is... Um, well, it's it's hard to summarize it in in one little bit, but you see the ironies of Jesus seeking to demonstrate to the scribes and Pharisees who he is, and they're blind to it. They ignore him, essentially, and Jesus is the one who's coming to save his people, Israel, from their sins, is interacting with Israel first, seeking to redeem them, to lead them forward, uh, but they they are ignoring him. But then you have this Gentile woman who recognizes him as the son of David. She recognizes he's the fulfillment of, of the scripture, we might say. Um, and he he ignores her, but not finally. And in fact, as she interacts with him, she he he makes clear, look, I'm I'm here to save the people of Israel from their sins. And she says, But aren't aren't even the dogs able to eat the crumbs? And um I think Jesus's point in her in interacting with her in this way is to show he's here first to save Israel, but they re- where they reject him, he's not going to fail other people. He's not going to reject others. He invites even Gentiles into this new community that he's founding, but he does offer it to Israel first, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. It is interesting that she is one of two people in the book of Matthew where Jesus commends their faith, and the other person is another Gentile, the centurion. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if Matthew's gospel is written for Gentiles, that's what a lot of people say, he's going to great pains to show Jesus is your Savior too. Jesus is your King too. And look, even in his ministry, there were Gentiles who actually responded more favorably to Jesus. So keep responding favorably to Jesus. He's he's your God and King as well. In the account of John the Baptist being beheaded, the thing that I took away from that is that speaking out against sin is dangerous. He was speaking out against Herod's marriage, and mm-hmm. then Herod's new wife was counseling her daughter to to have John executed, which you would think would be a threat to, John would be a threat to his kingship. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would want to make sure we recognize that Herod is positioning himself as king of the Jews. So he's he's positioning himself as the king of Israel. And 
his father, right, is the Herod of Matthew 1 through 4, correct? And this is one of his four sons who's taken over that that land essentially after his father died. I believe this is historically correct. If I'm wrong, someone let me know. But the point is that John is not proclaiming this message to the emperor of Rome. He's proclaiming it to the person who's saying that he's ruling over God's people, Israel. Um, and this guy is not following the instructions that, that are in Deuteronomy 17, is he? He's happy to engage in sexual relations with more than just his wife. And John is preaching against this. Um, so I think sometimes when we try to construct a political theology or how Christians should relate to the government, people look to this text and say, Christians need to tell the president of the United States how to live morally or not. And there might be some value there, but it is a little bit of a different situation because this is a guy who's establishing himself as king of the Jews. The thing that I was noticing too was earlier, I think it's in chapter 11, John's called a new Elijah or one like Elijah. And mm-hmm. Elijah does a similar thing to Ahab in 1 Kings 18. And he speaks out against Ahab. And in this sense, he there's a parallel here. When Elijah dies, Elisha has to take up the mantle, and we see John the Baptist die, and that's when Jesus really comes out onto the scene here. Exactly. I think there are many parallels between the Elijah-Elisha accounts and the John the Baptist-Jesus accounts. So I think you're onto something. Can can I tell a short story about a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of this text? Yes. Okay. So when I worked at this summer Bible camp in the Northwoods of Wisconsin— there was this guy there named Will Galkin who would do this game with the counselors the week he was speaking. And it was called, um, I forget what it was called, but it was like the fiery darts something or whatever. So he would name like a sin or a positive thing. And you would need to give a Bible quote or story that would illustrate or back up, you know, a way, a way to, you know, fight sin or something like that. So he might have a, he would have the kids shout out something and then he would put it and then you, you would go down the line and you'd have to keep giving a reference until you couldn't do it in the lot of time. And then you were out. So for example, someone might say something like, um, murder. So one person would quote, you should not murder. And then you'd, you know, you'd go down to the line till no one could do it anymore. And then you were out and whoever was still up at the end won. You know, then a new sin would come up. So one was, I forget exactly how the kid worded it, but it was something like keeping your promises or something like that. And so there was this guy, you know, we were going down the line. We had gone through so many references and this guy couldn't think of something. So, so for keeping your promises, he referenced this text, how Herod is a good example of someone who kept his promises. <laughs> it was hilarious, in my opinion. Speaking of Elijah, we see in the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appearing when Jesus goes up. Aaron, can you enlighten us a little bit about the significance of these two Old Testament characters specifically? Why these two? Well, you might have more to say on this than I do. Um, I think that these two individuals are significant because there were expectations in the Old Testament that these figures would either reappear or someone greater than them would reappear. So for Elijah, um, 
that was initially met with Elisha, this man who takes on the double spirit. But it seems like in the Old Testament, there's this expectation that Elijah would come again. And the disciples reference this exactly, you know, and um, the same with Moses in Deuteronomy. There's a verse that says no prophet or no individual like Moses has risen again to this day. So people are looking for these figures, and now they see them here with Jesus. And Jesus evidently is greater than both of them. So I, I would say that's the significance that's found here. Aaron, Matthew, thank you both for being here. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, thanks, AJ, for leading this. And thanks for anyone who happens to still be listening. Um, and as always, if there are things that you wish we would have talked about in a text, let AJ know because we can add that to a future episode or do a standalone episode on that. Um, or if as you're scan- scanning ahead in future reading and you'd like something covered, just talk to AJ. would be happy to add it to our list. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm excited about talking about Exodus next week and continuing to talk about Matthew. Thanks again, guys. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org.